The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. The caffeine has been consumed. The game has been rewatched. And we are ready to rock here on a controversial classic Game one of the 2018 NBA Finals. And Danny, you had a big place that you wanted to start talking about this game. There are a series of different angles that we can use. But for me, the overarching takeaway is that the Warriors are really fortunate to come away with a win in this game. And I mean that for a lot of reasons. The obvious ones, of course, George Hill missing the free throw, J.R. Smith, you know, bungling the response after he got that offensive rebound those are certainly parts of this but they are not the whole thing and i think one big one that should not be lost in the shuffle is clay thompson in the first quarter went down with what looked like a really bad knee injury like in person i my first thought was he's out for the finals i i when i saw it live before any replays that was the first thing i thought he came back in played i believe 30 minutes and then cleveland's support players were getting wide open looks from LeBron. Generally, these were capable three-point shooters and they just couldn't hit a shot. And so while the Warriors did many things well, there were, you know, there are positives out of this and reasons that they won this game outside of Cleveland failing to have all of those things happen and LeBron be just superhuman to come away with a with a win in that game is fortunate. Start with Clay. I, I think what saved him, it looked like, was the fact that his leg didn't actually get caught under JR and that as he kind of got twisted down, he was able to get his foot out from underneath him. And I think that saved him from anything where it's not being called a left lateral leg contusion and it's uh, not up near the knee. It's a little bit lower. So not similar to Andre Guadalas and Thompson came back in and basically played, I think 39 of the remaining 41 minutes of the game. The three-pointers was another thing, especially, you know, in the first half, the Warriors' defense was awful. They're letting LeBron James go right to the rim a number of times. We'll talk more about how it is that LeBron was able to be so good, but uh, this was not the Warriors' defense that we've seen at times uh, on LeBron in the past. Uh, we said that we LeBron would have easier going than he did against Boston in the preview. That certainly was the case in this game with, with Andre Iguodala out. But the biggest stat of the game to me was that Cleveland shot only 3 out of 17 on three-pointers off of passes from LeBron James. And uh, guess what? LeBron James usually doesn't pass it to you unless you're wide open. (laughs) So uh, that is just a really, really ugly number. Kevin Love, in particular, had a nice game uh, on two-pointers. He was actually 8 out of 12 on two-pointers. He usually shoots poorly on two-pointers against the Warriors. He had 21 points. But 
he was one out of eight from three, and I thought he had some very good looks, especially in the first half, that just did not go down. Jeff Green also one out of six. He missed a huge corner three late in the game as well. Green maybe not someone that you expect to hit that many shots. J.R. Smith had some chances also. It was, uh, and when you throw out LeBron's three for seven, and he hit some pretty ridiculous ones in that third quarter, the rest of the Cavs were seven out of 30 overall from three, which was uh, considering that the vast majority of those were catch and shoot looks. That is a very, very ugly performance. Yeah, and one other part of it, I just want to make sure we mention this early so we don't forget it. Another big swing in this game that won't get talked about enough is George Hill's foul trouble. So Hill was definitely their best option at point guard, considering the only other guy that Tyloo played. And he got caught a couple of times. I thought that most of his fouls were preventable. And the last one is this really tough situation. It happened a couple of different times in this game where a guy had his kind of had his hand in the cookie jar, didn't actually commit the foul, but the ref, you know, it looks like a foul, so the ref called it. So, sure, that fifth foul was a tough call. I, I would agree that, with that. That was the one where KD, the, the first foul of the overtime, where KD was uh, was isoing him I coming across te- the lane. I think it was, yeah, I think that yeah. sounds right to me. But, yeah, so, you know, that's a tough call. It happens. Officiating the NBA is very difficult. But, I, but George Hill, because him being in foul trouble forced – Lou to go to some other options one of those being Jordan Clarkson who was absolutely abysmal in the first half and rough overall yeah I will actually say that Clarkson did okay defensively he had a couple of a couple of steals uh he had a steal as a help defender that was quite nice on Durant yeah, yeah he had that one he had one in transition when they tried to throw it over his head he tracked back pretty nicely but also a, a massive struggle with him only two for nine although he was amazingly somehow plus eight it was uh kids were plus minus might have been a little bit misleading and he had some real just bad decisions and you know he can't he can't make the good shots that he gets and he's been taking a lot of bad ones as well the other thing that really struck me about this game is we talk about the big themes was once again the amount of switching and we thought well Cleveland they're never going to switch if it's Kevin Love right if Kevin Love doesn't play and he was ruled in early in the day if he doesn't play then maybe they'll switch everything, right? They'll have a, a bunch of like-sized guys. They'll have Tristan at center. They can do that. Instead, they did switch everything, even when Love was involved. And actually, the stats were not that bad. When Love either defended as the big in a pick and roll, which basically meant that he was switching out. You know, I went back and watched all the plays. Or just w- was a straight switch. They only scored 11 points and 12 possessions on him. Now, that's all half court, so that's not a great number in half-court defense but it was interesting that curry had 11 points on nine possessions and also had a a number of drives at his expense where he's able to set up other stuff then kd interestingly had zero points uh, on three possessions um and that's another thing i can transition to too is that i thought that kevin durant really had a very very rough game uh, on both ends of the floor but particularly on defense uh, against lebron yeah i thought that both the strategy and the execution for the Warriors on LeBron were strange. I mean, Durant well, is notoriously What bad. do you say about the strategy? You're talking about the fact that they switched a lot or, or what? Well, I think the idea that early on, it seemed like they were fighting through, but then Durant wasn't good at that. And so they, you know, they eventually the switches worked out better. So they went to more switching later on. And for me with LeBron, while he was hitting his jumper in this game, he actually shot, I believe it was a straight 50% on jump shots. Yeah, he was... 7 of 14 on jump shots in this game. 
if you can make, you know, to, the reason to me that you switch a pick and roll more often than not, you can, there are driving lanes if you, if you, if you fall back on it. Certainly we've seen that with Ben Simmons, but the biggest reason why you do that is because you don't want the guy pulling up for the jump shot during that space when the guy's going around the screen, whichever way it is. And especially if you're doing drop back, which is what I would do with, with LeBron. That fear is very present for Chris Paul. It's fear for J- for James Harden, even Drew Holiday with the way that he was playing early in the playoffs. LeBron, you know, I think that's actually closer to the best case scenario for a lot of his possessions because he's such yeah, a good Yeah, uh, although he was, think... he was nailing his jumpers today, though, especially he early. Oh, he was. Uh, you know. But I'm going to play the numbers game with him. I'm going to play the numbers game with him as a jump shooter. Like, if, if that's what Cleveland's offense is, I think that's about as good as you can do when he's on the floor. Yeah, you know, I, maybe, but I, I think that they, uh, the Warriors, their strategy is, you know, they want to make these guys drive. They want them to be tired by the end of the game, and they want to stick to three-point shooters, and they want to make guys finish over length. Now, if LeBron James doing that is a lot different than James Harden. I think that we saw in this game just how big of a difference there is between LeBron and James Harden when the Warriors were, were trying a pretty similar strategy against it. But you're right, they did try to get over. But KD, I mean, just his on-ball pick-and-roll defense, they had to switch it because there's just no way he couldn't get over the screen, right? I mean, part of why you at least get over a couple of times and then maybe you're, the clock's low enough that Steph Curry can hold up okay and he can, doesn't really have time to get to the basket and draw help and make a pass. Well, KD couldn't get over the screen. He couldn't get under the screen. He got beaten on that very early on. Uh, and then he also like totally failed a number of times, as we'll get to at the end of the game, and just directing the ball in the correct direction. Like He just allowed LeBron to reject the screen and go right downhill for layups uh, and dunks. And then even as a help defender on LeBron, he was almost totally ineffective once he got switched off the ball. Coming over to try and help, he really didn't have much success either. Uh, and then, you know, in ISOs, he didn't really make much happen against Jeff Green except for that one drive late, which turned into the controversial block charge call. And it was, uh, he wasn't really able to create much separation or get great shots. He was 1-8 from 3. It was just a, a real struggle for him all the way around, and, you know, even up to that missed box out at the very end. Kevin Durant struggles defensive rebounding should not be a new thing for people who listen to the show or who watch the Twitter NBA show. That's something that, that you and I have both talked about for quite a long time. And he was, he was pretty awful overall. And to culminate the way that it did was pretty notable. We'll of course talk about that play a lot more later when we go through the substance of it. But yeah, I thought, I thought Durant wasn't good in this game. He was at, like, this was one of his weakest all around performances that I can recall in a Warriors uniform. And there were a lot of, a lot of Warriors that, you know, had, had good elements. I thought Curry, you know, Curry had some, had a strong first half in particular. I'm trying to remember his exact score. Into yeah, he had he had 18 and 18. 6 at halftime. And, oh, yeah, you know, LeBron James uh, had just a, an unbelievable first half. It was the easiest 25 anyone has, like, ever scored in, in a half. I mean, he was getting right to the rim. He finished the game 9 out of 10 at the rim, but also had uh, – he was getting to his mid-ranger. He was 3 of 7 from 3, 4 of 7 on mid-rangers. Really, the only success that they had slowing him down was if they could force him into something from floater range where he was only three out of eight, but that's still not even a terrible percentage from there. And even hit 10 of 11 from the foul line as well. I mean, it was a, a, a career playoff high for James with 51 points overall, 19 of 32 from the field. And his stats at halftime were even more preposterous. 
Yeah, I mean, at halftime, 24 points on 9 of 11 from the field, 5 of 6 from the line, 4 assists, 1 steal, 2 turnovers. Just absolutely ridiculous. Well, and the fact that he only had 8 assists, and we, we gave you that stat of 3 of 17 on 3-pointers on passes directly from James. That was from ESPN Stats and Info. And, I mean, you know, he should easily have had 10 assists, given the quality of passes that he was throwing. Um, I guess we should talk about all the controversy at the end. It is a shame to me that that's what this game is going to be most remembered for a, a Merkel's boner type of play by J.R. Smith to use a baseball reference but uh, and then also it's going to be remembered for the overturn of the block charge and then maybe also that altercation that happened at the end and it's just and supposedly like David McMenamin saying that a lot of Cavs staffers were saying under their breath like you know Ken Maurer fucked us uh after that overturned block charge Number one, it's just the fact that like people are going to choose to focus on these things instead of the probably 30 other things that happened in the last two minutes of this game in overtime is just pretty remarkable to me that they're going to focus on that one call. And secondly, it was the right call. Like it, it was clearly a blocking foul. We could see it. We were lined up perfectly with James to see him still moving to his left uh, and Stepping into KD, he said in the presser afterwards, like it was one of the best reads I've made in my career. I knew exactly what was happening. Well, that's great, but you didn't actually get there in time. Uh, and so, like, that was a clear blocking ball. They made the right call, and people want to focus on, well, you know, was James really close enough to the restricted area that maybe it shouldn't have triggered the review? And, like, yeah, okay, you really want to focus on that? But, like, that's just overall obfuscation to me. Like, the fair result was achieved. LeBron James didn't get rewarded with the charge that he didn't deserve. And if you want to make the argument that he was actually there, I mean, okay, I, I don't agree with you. We can have that argument a little bit more. But just like if you are a sportsman, you should want the result that is called correctly based on what the action on the floor was. And that was it to me. There's a an expression in law. It's a really old one. That's hard cases make bad law. And this is about as hard a case as it can get in the basketball context because when, first of all, seeing it live, I, I saw it pretty cleanly from our angle, and then I watched the replays on this a bunch of times. To me, not only is LeBron, is he moving at the lower body level, which some people like to focus on, but his shoulders move not only into the contact, but through the contact. He never stops moving until, like, basically he's on the ground, and... So that is is an important part of yeah. this. Yeah, and by the way, that... look look at the the angle that shows it most clearly is the over the basket camera. Like that one, you can clearly see that he he yeah. never you, even got you close. You see to his set. whole body. You you see his whole body, and he doesn't really take it in his chest either. It's it was weird because he was still moving, so the contact was bizarre as well. So okay, so you take that as a, and so if you're gonna say, oh well, we're wrong on that, you need to give a good reason why. And so so if if that's the case, it's a different thing. So you have that. Then it's I, I I understand I'm sympathetic towards people who are like, hey, well, because he was significantly out of the restricted area. But that is a really weird reason to get mad. I, I, I understand it because it is, you know, it's the like technically correct is the best kind of correct, like all that all that sort of stuff. But I mean, and, and yeah, I think the rule should be, you know, it should be structured in a way where they can maybe review more so that things like this can happen. 
even though I don't love I, I think there should be a but challenge system like they had in the G League, actually. I think that would Challenge system would be would be one way of doing it. There, there, there are a series of different things that... Also, this is an example of the kind of charges that I want to eliminate from the game because LeBron was not guarding Kevin Durant. He just slid in there instead of like trying to play defense. He just stood in his way, and the, either one of those guys could have gotten hurt, and heaven forbid that would have happened because, that I mean, two superstars that are huge in this series. So, yes, I, I, I think there is that... If you want to call that a gripe, if you want to call that a legitimate gripe, but it's it's like this, it's the stupidest legitimate gripe that I I can think about. And so point to a million other things, and and the Jr. play is is a good one. You know, people are saying, oh, George Hill missing the free throw. Well, okay, sure. If he makes that free throw, a lot of these things don't happen. Also, the Warriors have a timeout; they would advance the ball. Who knows what would have happened in that circumstance? Basically, a a four point seven second one off. But just missing a free throw isn't necessarily a choke. I mean, guys miss free throws. It's not like he's a 99% free yeah. throw. But, well, although if you're going to focus on any of the three things, I think that's like the biggest thing to focus on compared to like the JR sure. brain fart. Uh, well, the other the other one to focus on is Kevin Durant missing that oh, box. Man. At least he was I like mean, self-critical of that in the presser. Like it was so weird to me that no one was. no one uh, was bringing that up. I think uh, other than me that, that like seven foot kevin durant uh just couldn't box out monster offensive rebounder jr smith uh but yeah we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that play in a second because there's like there's sure. like eight things that were completely ridiculous about that play um including one that only, i think you and i are going to be the only people that focus on but it's a very important part of that so yeah but but the whole like block charge oh you know it wasn't close enough to trigger the review like that's just uh, reminds me of one of my favorite onion headlines i think i've used it once before which is uh jurisprudence fetishist gets off on technicality like that's just what what are these just like come on like it, it was clearly a, a blocking foul it should have been called that way initially and i think i think one of the refs had it as a as a block and the other one had it as a charge initially anyway uh so they're always going to review it regardless all right we, we got much more to get to got to get into the meat of this game I and mean, we're going to go for a long time on this i, I would imagine also we're going to have mark stein on to talk uh, colangelo and Kawhi uh, later but first, this from a new sponsor, Omaha Steaks. This was actually perfectly timed for me because I'm doing the low carb right now to uh, shed for the wed, which uh, my friend told me, which is completely ridiculous. And I've been using it and annoying it with everybody. Uh, I, I'm not quite at the point where I can say shred for the wed yet. Maybe I, I will be there. But I've been focusing on, on low carb and I'm still eating deliciously. Thanks to Omaha Steaks, which delivers hand-trimmed, flash-frozen, and vacuum-sealed meats directly to your door in Omaha Steaks Cool. It shows up there. They got some dry ice in there to keep it cool. Put it in the freezer. And uh, I got the exact same package that they're offering my listeners, which is a limited-time Father's Day package for only $49.99. It's a 78% off deal. The way you get started is you go to omahasteaks.com. And start off, actually, by searching cap space, and that's how you get this Father's Day package. And, of course, let them know that you came from us. This includes two filet mignons, two sirloins, four chicken fried steaks, which I'm actually really itching to try, but I can't have it yet because of the breading, two boneless pork chops, four all-beef Omaha steak burgers, four jumbo franks, which actually were really good, uh, and then 12 ounces of all-beef meatballs, which I just had the other day as well bunch of other stuff also and that includes four more omaha steaks burgers free with purchase so great package 
for dad. Again, you can get this limited time package for only $49.99 when you go to omahasteaks.com. Make sure you type cap space in the search bar and add that Father's Day package to your cart. Don't wait. This offer ends soon, and Father's Day is just around the corner here since it's NBA Finals time, but make sure you use that cap space code. Let them know that you came from us. So I was I thought that Cleveland started off extremely well offensively, and, and it was clear right away that Golden State did not have the formula. One of the things that they went to that I thought worked extremely well and that I felt they should have done more of was the play that we've been talking about all playoffs with LeBron James at the elbow, and then usually Steph Curry's man, whoever the point guard is guarding his man, screening for Kevin Love coming out of the corner and then playing off of that, whether it's Love trying to get into a post-up, cutting backdoor, James threw an incredible backdoor pass to Love on one of those, whether it's the shooter then popping out, whether it's Love faking the back door and popping out for a three. They got a good look on that. And then a couple of times, the Warriors blew the switch on one of them. Then it seemed like the plan was to have Draymond Green, who's guarding Tristan Thompson, help out on the back door coming across the lane from the opposite block. So the Cavs countered that easily by having Tristan, who wasn't being guarded anymore, go screen for LeBron. LeBron just comes off the screen and nails an 18-footer. It really looked great. And they went away from it which I, I was surprised by. It got Love going early. Love also got a couple of jumpers on Kavon Looney, who I thought was very bad defensively on him. KD got cooked on one of these two in the first half where Love catching it at 18 feet, turning and facing. Like, you have to make Kevin Love put the ball on the floor in that situation. You can't fall for a jab step and let him just shoot the ball. Like, that's the shot that he wants to take. Like, you, those guys have the quickness advantage on him. They should not be letting Love just jab step backing off and then letting him get to that jumper a no dribble jump shot for a great shooter like that is too good of a shot to give up you gotta force him to put it on the floor and trust help if it's needed and and force a decision instead of just letting him walk into that jumper basically and the combined actions especially once they started adding in the Tristan Thompson element it just took the Warriors defense in a lot of different directions and so they weren't able to recover as well as they usually do because you know Draymond's in a certain area that isn't necessarily comfortable and and as the Warriors have dealt with in the Rocket series having a center especially Tristan Thompson's a very good screener when he's engaged in doing that as he was in this game you can create opportunities all over the court and I thought the Cavs did a really nice job of that offensively that said they were giving up easy baskets defensively a whole lot as well. Yeah, and we've seen the Cavaliers really focus in past years on taking the ball out of the hands of Steph Curry many times with pick-and-roll traps on the ball or with more versatile switching defenses when they have that personnel available. We, I don't think we saw a single pick-and-roll trap in this whole game, which... With Andre Iguodala not out there, with Looney out there, him being the guy setting the screen a lot of times, I actually would have thought that they should try that and make him throw the ball to Looney and make Looney make a decision. Or Jordan Bell is a little better at it, but still you know, not the most polished quite yet in that situation. But you know, they didn't really. And Curry was really on fire early and totally got going in the first quarter, had that big first half with, with 18 points. And... They really did nothing to get Curry out of rhythm. Curry looked like he was just having a walk in the park this whole game, basically. You know, they weren't really physical with them. They weren't, they, they did nothing. Like the Cavs have defended Curry relatively well, and, and they really just did nothing along those lines at all. 
you know, whether it's giving him the matchup against Love time and again, and, and Curry really, uh, as we'll get to, was very successful against that late. Uh, so, uh, and, and of course, that old Cleveland bugaboo, the transition defense uh, popped up a, a lot, especially in the first and third quarters, I, I thought. So it was, uh, they certainly were scoring easily, Cleveland, and, and but uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that they're not going to stop Golden State in this series. The first half reminded me a lot of last year's finals where Cleveland was scoring well and they were they were getting some stops but really it was it was just kind of a matter of time and remember that Clay Thompson missed the second half of the first quarter he ended up playing you know so much of the second and overall in the game and and the rotations were super disjointed so you're sitting there going okay well that's that's what this story is and you know later on I think that 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 story did change to a point but I mean, it really is at a, at a certain juncture with this configuration of Cleveland and Zach Lowe wrote an interesting piece about kind of the lineup concepts that Cleveland could go with, with the Love, Thompson, LeBron, Smith, Hill lineup. I mean, I think your your best path is to try to outscore them. And, you know, that, that lineup will do it sometimes. I mean, LeBron was hitting all of his jump shots in this game, was creating great looks for his teammates. But that is a really hard way. Now they have to do it. They have to beat the Warriors four times out of six. It's a really hard way to make that happen. Cleveland was actually able to survive in this game with LeBron out. I think they were actually plus with LeBron out in this game. David West had a tough defensive half stint. He only played four minutes, didn't play again in the second half. Cleveland also really dominated on the offensive glass. James had four offensive rebounds. J.R. Smith had three, including that fateful one. Larry Nance was excellent on the offensive glass as well, though he also gave up a, a pretty ugly free throw offensive rebound and put back to Looney in the fourth quarter. Uh, Love got a couple on the offensive glass, and Thompson only had two, but I think he actually drew four loose ball fouls going for offensive rebounds in this game. So overall, Cleveland 37% offensive rebounds for the game, and Golden State did not have a single offensive rebound in the first half in particular. And Cleveland is looking pretty good. They led 51-40, and then they gave up a, an 8-0 Golden State run with a couple of threes uh george hill got some of the rough foul calls in the first half at least he certainly didn't seem to agree with them it was a weird first half for draymond green too uh he had a couple of just total brain fart turnovers his three-pointer they were just letting him shoot he was way off like wasn't even close and he was hesitating on that and then defensively he was making a lot of odd decisions to uh, attack in the post in situations that didn't really seem to merit it relatively non-threatening matchups you know like kevin love guarded by clay thompson it was just hard double you know like the where and love really has not had that much success on clay thompson uh you know a lot of over helps and then not getting back to shooters and, and just maybe a little bit too much overactivity for him i thought he had a much better defensive second half uh and then of course there's that fateful play to tie the game at the end of the first half where curry hit that 40 footer uh any thoughts on that one? I'm trying to remember if Cleveland blew a defensive coverage on that. I, I mean, it was late in the was, half. Jr. kind of went for the steal. They had the foul to give as well. That's right. Um, although I actually think. Oh wait, I, yeah. did they have the foul yeah. to give? Because I thought they, they had. They did. They did. Yeah, okay. but but I actually wouldn't use the foul to give there until they really get into a scoring position. Because if there's like 1.5 left, which is about what there was when Curry caught the ball. And he wasn't really that close. You know, now JR shouldn't have gone for the steal. He should have just probably played it uh, like 
with one second left, you're not going to do much if you get that steal. But uh, if he just plays it straight, he's going to be fine there. You know, it's just so hard to get off a shot from that deep unless you can really step into it. Uh, but fouling there, I don't like because then you actually allow them to inbound the ball in the front court with 1.5 left and actually get it into the scoring zone, which they, you know. And and you run the risk of it being a shooting foul. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good point too. But Curry, I mean, he's only hit, I think, one other of those just like, you know, 40 footer or beyond this year i think you looked it up it was in like the clippers game or something so i mean he is not yeah i think it was the first quarter of the clippers i mean and by the way just remembering that 2016 i mean he probably had like five or six of those from like 40 feet or beyond at the end of a quarter and it just puts into stark relief just like what a ridiculous if perhaps slightly lucky season that was but just a feeling like anything was possible there but uh the warriors really were lucky to be tied cleveland was only three of 12 from three in the first uh they also played javel mcgee to close the half and then went with him to start the third and it looked like for a time that was a fantastic decision yeah i mean well there are a couple different perceptions there so the warriors were outscoring cleveland early and they were getting good looks on offense but part of the reason they were outscoring cleveland was because javel was blowing things defensively and the Cavs were just missing open shots so, well, I, don't know. I, I thought he did an okay job on the switch. It, it was very interesting to me that that was the strategy. I mean, I think like uh, the Warriors just like don't even play conventional pick and roll defense anymore, I guess, in the playoffs now. But I, I thought the switch actually not. worked pretty well. Well, he did, had that one on LeBron where he held him for like eight seconds or so and then bit on a pump yeah. fake and LeBron missed the, the shot. The one thing it um, does seem like the Warriors were very focused on, maybe even too much, was in an ISO with LeBron, we are not going to let LeBron get to his step back to his left. And that might have meant that they gave up a few too many hard right-handed drives. And obviously a lot of his uh, plays were on nice ball-handling moves where he wrong-footed the defense in a pick-and-roll situation. LeBron, I don't remember a single post-up that he had in this whole game. Do you remember one? I don't think he had a single one. I think he tried one on Steph Curry kind of, but it was was a dribble into a post-up rather than like an entry pass. Yeah, no, and I was surprised that they didn't do that more. A lot of those Steph Curry switches were late clock. Uh, but no, I mean, actually, when you really go back and watch the film of all of LeBron's buckets, Steph Curry uh, and all of his shots, switching Steph Curry onto him was the best uh, of the many bad options that they had because they just couldn't execute any other anything else. And a lot of that started with, you know, KD being the main guy in LeBron. They, they even tried Draymond on LeBron a little bit, and he did better, but they also just value what Draymond does as a help defender so much it doesn't seem like the best idea to put him on LeBron uh more than a few possessions a game and we don't know how much longer it's going to last but that's another reason why the warriors miss iguodala is that draymond cannot be in two places at once and so just having another capable defender on the floor is is there and i mean we got into this at various moments in the game with looney or jordan bell or javel mcgee it's like you know those guys need to they're they're not necessarily the answer to those questions either because they're not getting over there in time because cleveland has so much spacing on the floor yeah, so the Warriors had a seven-point lead at various points and, and seemed to be threatening to break the game open, but that never happened, especially, I thought, early in the fourth. Steph Curry had some really nice looks that just didn't go down during that period. James was taken out when they actually, the Warriors had their largest lead, 82-75. They weren't able to capitalize with him out of the game either. The Cavs, again, I think were plus one during his short break, and... The Cavs also were able to get out in the fast break. The third quarter had 11 Cavs fast break points and 11 Warriors fast break points. Even though it seemed like the Cavs transition D 
was worse. Uh, the Warriors still led 89-82 early in the fourth, and then two threes in a row, one by Jeff Green, the one that he hit, and then one from Corver on another mistake from Green, who closed out on Corver, but let him do an escape dribble to his right, which is the only way that, that Corver is one of the few guys who is more comfortable going to his right uh, as a three-point shooter. He almost like can't go to his left and shoot a three because he has to kind of like step into it with almost like a swinging gate kind of motion. So Corver just uh, like went to his right after Green had closed him down. Green just let him shoot a three there. So that basically got it back to being close. And uh, anything else you want to say on the second half before we kind of pick up the end of the game here? And yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that it was Green's only made three. It was also Corver's only made three because he, he was one for three overall in the game. And those were the only two three-pointers made by Cleveland's bench. Cleveland's bench was two for 12 on three-pointers. Yeah. Also worth noting. Just yeah. Oh, yeah. Go oh, ahead. Wait. Sorry. One other thing to mention before we get into it. You said David West. You know, struggled in the first half. He didn't play at all in the second. So yeah. they brought in Javale to start. Then Looney played, and then they did some with Draymond at center, and then Looney closed regulation and at center for the most part. You know, there were a couple of tactical subs, but yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting to see that center rotation change, and that was actually something that paralleled the Western Conference Finals, where you know Kerr would try David West. He would try these different options. McCaw actually got some minutes early on when they, the in this weird second unit lineup that they were going to. Oh yeah, they, did, they with, played. They played four guys who couldn't guard LeBron with LeBron on the floor. With with and, uh, yeah, I mean they had Livingston guarding LeBron. They had they were playing Clay at the four. That was a, mm-hmm. a really odd line. I think that was the lineup that started this the fourth quarter. I want to say it started the second oh, quarter. Second it was, quarter, it okay. was Curry. It was Curry, McCaw, Livingston, Thompson, and I believe it was David West was the same. I think they should and, try Clay on LeBron, especially if LeBron... He's, he's struggled with him in the past at moments, but I think he's, without Iguodala, whenever Iguodala is unavailable, he moves up the list. I, I don't recall Clay struggling with LeBron before. I think I've always been shocked at how well Clay has held up in the post against LeBron, but especially since LeBron was playing almost exclusively facing the basket, and I don't think he wants to post up against the length of KD necessarily. Uh, but Clay, actually, you know, you probably could play closer to conventional pick and roll coverage on LeBron if you had Clay, who actually can get over a screen. Uh, if LeBron is going to be playing more at the top of the key and working off the dribble, I think they should try that. Clay got I mean, he's he's really, especially because Clay's not the greatest health defender, there isn't really anyone else for Clay to be guarding because now, you know, Kyrie Irving isn't on this team anymore. So, I mean, maybe they want to have him on George Hill so that they can switch that action a little bit. But I think it's something that they could try. Um, but anyway, yeah, let's uh, return to, and I guess also the fifth Beatle analysis here. Jordan Bell again to me, you know, he was plus two. Looney was negative 10. Uh Looney actually did have eight points and he was four or five. He had three offensive rebounds, three of the Warriors, four offensive rebounds, actually. But I, I still think that Jordan Bell is better than Looney, particularly uh, one of the bigger things, too, is that like Bell is so much better in transition and just has keeps their offensive pace flowing so much more. Looney is just not really a transition player. Um, just gives a lot more energy. Now, can Bell guard LeBron on a switch as well as Looney? I don't know. Looney, actually, I think it's not bad uh, on the switches on LeBron. Um, but... I, I still think that Bell just needs to play more. And then Livingston, he was also 10, 10 points, 4-4, four four, uh, only played 18 minutes, including all five minutes in the overtime. Why it is that they wouldn't just go with Draymond at center? I mean, I think the only minutes they played with Draymond at center this whole game, essentially, was those last five minutes of the overtime when they killed him. 
Yeah, I think they had a little splash in the fourth, early in the fourth quarter, but I, I think it was just brief. I didn't, I might not even be right on that. So let's pick it up here in the in the fourth quarter. It was tied at ninety four. Draymond had a three after KD isoed on J.R. Smith, and, and you know, pretty weak move by KD. He just was kind of like getting pushed backwards by J.R. Smith for half the possession, and before he finally started his iso. But Tristan Thompson probably the right decision. They were letting Draymond shoot. Um, I'm actually much more interested in letting Draymond Green shoot early in the game than late in the game because I think he loves taking those threes late in the game. And so he hit a big one when Thompson was just kind of stationed at the elbow and, and they just threw an easy pass to Draymond at the top. And then after that, Curry hit an immediate three on a crossover going to his right out out of a pick-and-roll switch on Kevin Love. Yeah. Before that, I thought Looney actually made a nice play. LeBron was trying to throw a pass into Kevin Love and Looney read the play, tipped it, and was able to tip it, and it still hit Kevin Love's hand. And so that's what led the Warriors getting the ball back without Cleveland even taking a shot. And then Curry got that three on Kevin Love. Yeah, and the next time down, after they got another stop, probably could have ended the game, and they're under four minutes. Curry drives by Love again. LeBron comes over to help. He hits Looney, and then Looney just kind of ganked the layup. LeBron was coming over to help and i'm not sure whether lebron blocked it or not it looked like looney had good position to finish it and just i think couldn't. lebron caught it yeah. when i when i watched the replay it looked like lebron got it but if looney goes and just tries to dunk that ball instead of laying it up they it would either would have been yeah. a, a foul or he would have yeah, i mean lebron does have maybe the heaviest footsteps in the league uh, of any perimeter player uh but so then was another error by kevin durant letting lebron drive right to the rim doesn't force him to, to use the screen lebron is an easy euro step for a layup uh they ran a kd their kd iso play a cross screen for him the cross screen doesn't really work the warriors took forever to get into it jeff green did a really nice job of pushing kd out on the floor to the point where they tried to bring love's man over for a screen but it was already under five and kd had to go to a step back over love that airballed a, a three and that was followed by another bucket from LeBron. They ran a double high screen to get Curry onto LeBron. And I thought that my criticism of Curry was, especially on the right side of the floor, that he just didn't quite do enough to sit on LeBron's right hand. And he let LeBron get straight right hand drives. Uh, and this one ended in a LeBron dunk to bring them within two. And KD, I, I was critical of his help earlier. One of the problems that he has, especially coming over, from the right side to the or from the the left block to the right block but you know the offense's right side of the floor he's coming over and he's trying to block shots with his right hand against a right-handed driver in lebron and there's just no way you're going to get over there with your right hand you're either got to go through his body and follow him or he's just going to beat you to the spot which he did over and over again you got to come over there and block shots with your left hand uh and you can do it without fouling and you're actually going to have a chance of blocking it or at least affecting the shot. So uh, bad technique from KD uh, on a lot of those help plays, and that that was one of the big reasons, you know, both not getting over there quickly enough, not quick enough awareness, but then also just poor technique as he actually went up uh, to challenge the shot. Then on the next trip down, Curry gets Love again, beats Love again, gets a layup to put the Warriors up four. Then LeBron yeah. gets Curry again. It's funny, my notes on this are just like, yeah. Curry, gets, Curry gets Love, LeBron gets Curry. Yeah. And but so quick, on quickly play, on, on the, the Curry one against Love, they had the by far the most success both in, in the Rocket series and then this one in particular of just going hard right away. Uh, 
as soon as the oh, switch you mean occurs. Not waiting until not waiting until six on the shot clock, like Durant did yeah. on Love the possession before. Right, but but not only that, but it's just having momentum, being already moving by the time the switch takes place, and then just continuing to attack uh, off the dribble. And they were running a horn set, so there was no help available at the rim once Curry just blew right by Love. And Curry had a very nice game in the clutch in this one. So then we go down to the other end. LeBron gets Steph Curry again, but gives the ball to JR, who takes an above-the-break three and misses. And the Warriors didn't really box anybody out. They they had three guys close to the basket. They were all just kind of ball-watching. Uh, Draymond didn't really box out his guy, and then I think it was Looney was more just jumping for the ball. None of them secured it. Ball bounces out to Kevin Love. Kevin Love hits a three to bring it to a one-point mark. Yeah, and it was a really nice play by George Hill first to keep it alive as that Smith three almost went in. Uh, and then Thompson was the guy who actually tipped it out to Love, who made a great fake, eluded Kevin Durant, uh, and drained the three. That was the one three that he made, that top of the key three. So that made it 102-101 with 205 left. And after that, it's going to go, all right, you know, we're getting a little uh, sphincter tightening. So Curry made his most common mistake in an isolation, which was he didn't get to the top of the key and attack. He tried to attack from the wing, and he was able to get Hey, you know, probably not the greatest shot on Love, but it almost went in anyway. He was kind of... Well, do you know what happened on that play? I watched this one a couple oh, times yeah? because I was trying to figure out what was different. And it was that LeBron came over. But what was interesting was that the guy who was open on the play wasn't anywhere near the paint. They left Clay open in the opposite corner and Curry just couldn't see the line to it. Yeah. So he he had he, he it was kind of the it's not footsteps because LeBron was standing right in front of him. But so Curry didn't think that he could get that. Probably didn't see the pass because it was. I mean, there are three guys in the way and they're all really tall. So he just he's kind of settled for that tough banker that didn't go in. And so now Cleveland has a chance to take the lead, which did not work because LeBron James actually was cut off pretty nicely by Curry. He got cut off his right hand. KD was was on the block with Green, Jeff Green in the weak side corner, and LeBron threw a laser right to him, and Green's corner three was short by about a, a foot, barely grazed the, the rim. And KD then, he wanted to get Love on a switch from up top, which is, you know, I think he's got more of an advantage up top. And Love did okay cutting him off, and KD kind of didn't get the rise on his jumper that I think he wanted and, and ended up missing that. I mean, that's probably also a, a pretty decent shot there, uh, up one, uh, and then this is one that Cavaliers fans who were up in arms about the refereeing, I thought the and one call in favor of LeBron on Looney was a, a close one. I understand why the call was made, but it looked like Looney was pretty close to straight up after LeBron again uh, was able to get that straight right-handed drive on Curry. Looney came over with good help, took the contact in the chest, it looked like, uh, but LeBron ended up getting that foul call and making just an absolutely incredible finish on the way down for the end one to uh, give Cleveland its first lead in forever. Then on the, on the next possession, this is where you get in, gets into the controversial play. Curry danced around with Jeff green a little bit, then passes the ball Durant who drives by green. We've said our, our piece on this, that I, I feel strongly that LeBron was not in place. And while the process on it was flawed, you know, or blatantly incorrect, depending on your, on your view of it, the end result was, I mean, I don't even know that the process, uh, was flawed i mean the, like is there well if if there if they didn't legitimately believe that there was any question that he was in was not in the was or was not in the restricted area then it shouldn't have triggered the review 
maybe there was i mean it, and a lot of that depends on camera angle so that's that's where it could be incorrect is like if they basically yeah. just like used a flimsy premise the, that they the language of the rule is you can review it when you are not reasonably certain as to whether the defender was inside or outside of the restricted area so i mean it's one of those <laughs> where if does that mean if you have one percent doubt about it or you're just not entirely sure or maybe you're just watching the guy's body instead i mean it, it's tough but I, I think in general referees like getting the call right i mean the whistle blew so it's not an issue of like all right the clock is stopping here and when it wouldn't have stopped before you know like on a goaltend for example it's a little different right like if they call the goaltend they can review if they don't call the goaltend they can't here the whistle is blowing for either a block or a charge either way and with that being the case i think that most referees are going to take the opportunity with play already stopped if you can within the rules in any possible reasonable way to review it and that's kind of why this was put in so and i mean the idea of like well what is the point of them being able to like the rule is kind of weird of like well it's only if you're not sure about the block charge that you can then review everything else uh or or if you're not sure about the restricted area then you can review anything else but it kind of seems like the intent of the rule is we're giving you this tool to review whether it he was actually in legal guarding position or not so why wouldn't you use that tool uh at any time that you have the opportunity to do so you're not going to get much of an argument from me durant makes both free throws and then i actually thought this was one of the bigger tactical errors that the warriors made in this game where it didn't seem like they were prepared for a quick hitting Cavs play despite cleveland having all the incentive in the world to go for a two for one yeah, they called a timeout with 36 seconds left specifically to set up the two for one and this was kd again he just got totally wrong footed i don't know why like I don't know what he was thinking because, I mean, maybe they called out the screen on the wrong side or he didn't know where the screen was coming from, but like the screen was coming from his left side. So he just jumped into the screen. I mean, there's no reason why he would be doing that to me, but he just got totally wrong foot and LeBron goes right to the rim. Green did a great job. I mean, on a straight line drive from LeBron, it's so hard to get over there. He did. He actually affected the shot, but LeBron, another beautiful double pump finish uh, to put the calves up. By two, no timeout for the Warriors. They had two left at this point, but great idea not to... No, they had one oh, left. Oh, did they only have one left? Because they he used one after the LeBron and one. He did kind of the between free throw timeout, except that there oh, was right. only one free okay, throw. Okay, well, it, so in any event, it, that was another good reason then to not call the timeout, but they also had the Cavs with their offense-only players on the floor, Love and Korver, and Curry... They ran the Curry KD pick and roll, and Curry was being guarded by J.R. Smith, and KD never actually set the screen, but just coming over there was enough to make J.R. Smith start to worry about, all right, maybe I have to switch and get underneath Kevin Durant and start battling him. And so KD never made contact, so but Curry was able to just drive right by, and then Love was the rim protector, and Love had made the same mistake that KD was making. He and he's a much worse shot blocker than KD is too where he wasn't in position, he tried to get over, and then with Curry going in for a right-hand layup, Loves tries to block the shot with his right hand, commits a foul on Curry, and it's an and-one great finish from Curry. He hits the the free throw, and about 18 seconds left, uh, Warriors lead it by one at that point. And then the Warriors kind of 
it seemed to me like it wasn't necessarily their plan. They just ended up forcing the ball out. I, of I think that was just because... a straight up like Draymond Green improvisation, which, which he'll do sometimes. And, and it seemed to work. That was the first time that they tried, but it was so far out on the floor. And LeBron's pass actually was behind George Hill. Um, I thought at first, like George Hill was just kind of like too scared to attack, but I think it was really that the pass was so far behind him that Green was able to actually then recover back to Hill. I mean, the amount of ground he covered was pretty impressive there to get back to Hill. So then they got it back to LeBron with Curry on him. They got it back to LeBron, and then Draymond's attention is justifiably split between LeBron, who's you know right near him, and George Hill. And George Hill does something LeBron does a lot, which is a really nice cut at the moment when his defender is not paying particularly close attention, Is get gets right to the basket. LeBron is throwing the ball into him, and Klay Thompson catches George Hill. 100% the right call. Cleveland is in the bonus. So with a one-point deficit, George Hill goes to the line with a chance to either tie the game, give them the leader, and... and makes the first one yeah well a couple more things on that play too draymond basically like he was so he and kd were both basically standing at the elbow loaded to lebron james not even guarding a specific guy and thompson was kind of on the the block guarding a shooter in the corner i want to say it was jr and then as hill cut past him it was a really good cut by hill as you mentioned uh and Clay, I think, just recognized that they're about to give up a layup and just grabbed him, which ended up being the right decision. Because, of course, Hill, who is a great clutch free throw shooter in his career, uh, especially in the playoffs, I think he shoots 90% in the clutch. Not sure how big that sample is, but uh, David Locke had that tweet. Misses the free throw. But let's talk about all of the things that, you know, just a comedy of errors. Number one, they have one timeout left with 4.7. You're absolutely going to take the timeout, make or miss game game is tied already so why wouldn't you put in better rebound i guess zaza patchouli hasn't played the whole game javel mcgee is a little spacey they have six centers you know david west hasn't played in a while but i've always wondered why this is when bell and looney are in the game kevin durant takes the bottom spot and we know that kevin durant is like not a great box out guy my suspicion is that the reason they do it that way is just so kd can pad his stats a little bit with some rebounds uh but you know, I, I was wondering why KD was down there. Then for Cleveland, with 4.7 left, and they're clearly taking a timeout, why don't you put Jeff Green or LeBron James down there in the spot or even just go with your own big rebounders or put Kevin Love down there along with Tristan Thompson and try to go for the offensive rebound? It was JR down there. I'm like, why do they have JR? He's had no chance of getting the offensive rebound. And then he just shoves KD under the rim, and KD just makes no effort to like get low and actually box him out. Well, what, what KD did was so weird. He got into a position where he thought the ball was going to go. He didn't really go up for it either, and he wasn't he wasn't stable. He he just kind of stood there. And so JR was able to kind of get the position on him, and he, he didn't box out the man. He didn't go for the ball. He just kind of stood there. He he boxed out the air without it, even it was that. It was and soft so, as shit because, that, like, then he, like, kind of tried to jump, but he just, like, flailed uh, under towards the baseline under the basket, and it went right to JR. Um some controversy about whether JR could have gone straight up with it had he, you know, actually known what the score was. Uh, and this is, by the way, not the first time that JR Smith has messed up the score. You remember there was a, a Knicks game where he just took a three late in the game when they should have just been trying to run clock. Um, but I think he certainly could have gone up with like a floater in the lane. Now, JR is 
aside from like the one post up that he had early against Steph Curry it was interesting that they went to that a couple of times early it's him posting up on Steph Curry but JR basically I think has maybe taken like one shot at the rim in the half court in the entire playoffs so he's definitely is like not comfortable inside of 15 feet anymore in his career but why he would try to dribble it back out which just takes a ton of time instead of just looking back out for a shooter I have no idea or just taking a timeout yeah and the one argument you could say is that maybe LeBron James as heady as he is uh should have taken a timeout and, and hilariously once Smith dribbled out uh LeBron actually like instead of like clapping for the ball which he probably JR would have just thrown it to him like points back he was like so angry at JR for not realizing he's like go go to the rim like he, he's like you fix this mistake like you you go back and score and so he tried to throw it to George Hill and George Hill missed it uh you know if they had thrown it to LeBron maybe LeBron could have gotten a shot but the JR's explanation afterwards I mean there's a, a matter of some controversy obviously because first Ty Lue says that JR I don't know whether he said JR told him or that J, just he said it was as a fact that JR didn't know what the score was there's a lip read of JR apparently saying to LeBron I didn't know what the score was and then JR's comments to Brian Windhorst were uh you know I knew what the score was I would have just been waiting there to get fouled if I, I thought it was that I was trying to break out break out and get a shot. But if that's true, with 4.7 seconds left, you're probably not going to dribble all the way to the half-court line <laughs> before you realize what's going on. Uh, so, Oh, and Ty, Ty Lue did say JR told him that he thought they were up one. It was oh, he actually said told him? Yeah, out. okay. Yeah. Uh, and then the discussion afterwards, I mean, it, it was... Everyone was, like, trying to get, like, this gotcha, like, Mark Schwartz asked LeBron three different, four different questions at the same time of, like, what was going through JR's head? And LeBron's like, well, I don't know. I'm not him. Uh, and then did, did you have any conversations with JR about it? No, he, we didn't discuss it. Well, what was JR thinking there? Or, and he, like, asked him four times if that was fi finally LeBron just, like, left the presser and told everyone to be better, which I completely agree with because he got asked the same question four times in a row and he clearly wasn't going to answer it. And... You know, it wasn't being asked in a particularly articulate way either. So I, I was uh, totally on LeBron's side in that one. Um, but then I guess, you know, we went, in, we went into overtime. And uh, that much like, it, it had a feel much like the overtime of game one in 2015. When, and of course, that was after Kyrie went down. But where the Warriors, you know, it seemed like the Warriors were out playing the Cavs the whole game. But uh you know the Cavaliers kind of came back and like the sphincters tightened and they're lucky to get the Warriors were lucky to get into overtime and then they just totally blew them out in the overtime so weird though that Kerr just started the overtime with Sean Livingston like if Sean Livingston's the best option for the overtime like why isn't he the best option for the best three last three minutes of the game he'd played 14 minutes up until the start of the overtime I really just don't understand that and, and it's clear to me that Livingston is is by far the best option and it's not like they couldn't get a rebound with Looney out there anyway so as a, a defensive rebound at least so you might as well just play Livingston and get more mobility out there right and I mean just the benefits of playing a big whoever that is Looney David West Jordan Bell JaVale McGee all of whom played in this game you know, there weren't really many at that juncture with who Cleveland had on the floor and everything else and so yeah I mean going with Livingston who makes good decisions who can while he's not going to shoot threes, at least he can, you know, take a couple dribbles and make a pass or, or anything. And he's a, a much 
more intuitive cutter at this point in his career than the Warriors center option. So yeah, I, I thought he made a lot more sense in that. I mean, you and I have been saying that basically since Iguodala went down. I still stand by it. So it really ended very quickly in the space of uh, about four possessions in the overtime. First was that foul by Hill on, on KD. I didn't get a, a look at the replay of that one. You thought that was a questionable call? Well, so it, it reminded me a little bit of the Jason Tatum-LeBron call in Game 7, where it w- kind of looked like it was a foul until you saw it in slow motion, then you're like, oh no, he got all ball. Like that sort of a call. where So it was incorrect, but it was incorrect in a way that I didn't think was egregious. So players get super mad about those all the time. Durant had one, actually, I think it was like two possessions later. Durant had one where he, you know, he actually got the ball clean, but it was really hard to tell at the time. So, yeah, it, it was it was a rough whistle in that sense, but I don't know. It's a justifiable rough whistle. To me. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to go for the strip there if you're Hill just because, you sure. know, KD, once he gets the ball up, it's like he's just going to ball rack you. Um, so that was, I'll just say what Golden State's possessions were. Uh, oh, well, I want to yeah. mention that Cleveland's first, because Cleveland's shots started getting worse. Yeah. But their first one was a, a clean three off a of LeBron driving pass by Kevin right. Love that just missed. Yeah, I mean, they they had that one. Uh, Curry played pretty good D on LeBron, who looked like, that was one possession where he looked pretty tired, where he just kind of was like at half court and kind of just backed down and then just took like a one-foot Dirk fadeaway over Curry. That was after that foul, I think, was that phantom foul was called on KD. And they only had 14 on the clock, and so that that kind of they just like ran out of time because LeBron didn't really ever get into a, a hard attack. Uh, Draymond had a great defensive overtime. He they they tried a George Hill LeBron pick and roll with George Hill handling. He tried to get baseline on Draymond, and Draymond blocked him, and that led to a Clay Thompson corner three in transition, which was uh, you know that was big to put him up five, and then. You mentioned that Love missing the three off of LeBron's drive. Love also missed a hook in the lane off a pass from LeBron. Good contest from Draymond on that one. And then Curry's drive uh, on Love, who was on Clay, and on that one, again, in transition, and Clay actually screened Love as Love was coming over in pick-and-roll defense, and that let Curry get a head start, get right to the rim, and LeBron was helped on Curry and Curry through this awesome behind the head pass that surprised Sean Livingston, but he was able to recover and uh, hit a hook shot and they're up seven with under three minutes left. And that was basically uh, about it. Uh, I actually, well, yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, well that was basically no, no, except on. for I, what happened with two points. Well, sir, so uh, first of all, I want to just, uh, Kevin Love, I asked him about the strategy uh, of switching after the game. And uh, here's what he had to say on that. Nate Duncan dunked on podcasts. Kevin, the strategy late in the game, especially up here, was to switch pick and rolls. You got matched up on his stuff and KD a lot. How do you think those matchups went for you today? Um, I, you know, I don't know what the numbers say, but uh, they, you know, we gave ourselves a chance to win. You know, it wasn't just about my matchups. I felt like I did a good job of contesting, and you know, I was trying to set him into the two point area and. You know, guys, you know, had to pull over and contest. So those are tough guys to guard. So, yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning, I did pull the numbers on that. Uh, and it looked like it was 11 points on 12 possessions, which wasn't bad. But I still thought that uh, I don't think that strategy is going to be tenable going forward in this series. And especially in Oracle, like if you're letting Curry get off, it's just so hard. And Curry actually didn't have quite as good of a statistical game as it kind of seemed like he did. Uh, but he had 29 and 9, also had 6 defensive rebounds uh, 
on uh, and that that 29 points was on 23 shooting possessions so a very efficient game for him well a, a part of why his numbers don't look as good is because he missed two three-pointers that were pretty clean in the fourth quarter yeah but five of 11 is and, still pretty good and then thompson was five oh, out yeah. of ten as well um but yeah i, I mean do, do you think that strategy is tenable should they go back to to uh, uh more trapping of curry like what, what do you think with Iguodala out, I would definitely trap more yeah. than they than they did because there just aren't enough players that can kill you. And especially in this game, it was even more egregious because when Clay Thompson was missing time in the first quarter, there was even less spacing on the floor. They were trying out basically a bunch of different guys. And yes, Nick Young can shoot threes, but he's not nearly as good of an offensive player as Clay. And then of course he's miles worse defensively. So yeah, I think they should they should go to that more often. And and also one of the th- kind of takeaways for both of these teams, and I, I thought they didn't put up enough resistance on the switches. I thought, you know, like at least because like we saw the Rockets do such a nice job of just like ball denial and just getting in people's way and just how, how that slowed the Warriors down. And neither team did that in this game. So I guess we can talk about the end of the game here. I have said many times before, you know, we talked about it when Jordan Clarkson threw the ball at Dario Saric. Especially, and that was one where the shot clock was off. Although it seemed like maybe the Cavs kind of started the possession trapping, uh, and so if Sarge made a layup and Jordan Clarkson like threw the ball at Sharich afterwards, and, and an altercation resulted. Steve Kerr said he thought that these like end of game unwritten rule things are, are really stupid. Tim Kawakami after the game essentially he called them idiotic. I think that it's one of these things where it's just like the losing team is angry and just looking for some theoretically legitimate reason to like be angry at the other team uh you know as I, I think you should be allowed to continue playing until the buzzer sounds it's basketball it's, it's well, pretty and, easy solution and the alternative is to just turn the ball over and then you know that oh yeah well, well that's what made it even more ridiculous was uh you know sean like there was a three second differential with with the shot clock with livingston uh and I mean, if the sh- if the shot clock is off, then maybe it's it's different somehow sure. a little bit. I, I mean, even then, I just like the game but, is but still happening. I, I I think to me, I think to me, there's a little bit like I can understand the anger there. But if there's not, if there's a potential shot clock violation, I mean, why are you getting mad about it? Like it's it's just it's just completely egregious. And so the part of this that's hard for me is I never got to see a really good angle on the actual contact between Tristan Thompson and Sean Livingston because the the hard camera angle was a little bit was a little bit at a weird angle and then there was an alternate they showed which wasn't particularly helpful either but this is a circumstance where yes even though Tony Brothers not to me not one of the best officials to my eyes he had a better angle than I did and he was immediate on calling for the ejection and so maybe Tony Brothers got it wrong entirely possible that he did i can't say based on what i've seen whether he did or he did not my kind of preliminary read on the shitty angle was that it looked more like a flagrant one than a flagrant two where it's like he might not have been trying to do it but he hit livingston in the head and generally speaking even without intent that's been a flagrant one now so you have well and also it was the circumstances too because this there's there's nothing legitimate basketball play about it it was being pissed off that he was taking the shot and taking a shot at his head i mean that that to me you know and he also i think ejected him to avoid like any further kind of uh, altercation i think there's just there's a deterrent oh, effect one. to that 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 worked that worked out well yeah i mean and i was surprised that there weren't any other discipline given to thompson 
uh you know draymond green was certainly chirping to him plenty but then uh he appeared to make contact with green's face with his hand to shove him away green uh tried to go back at him and, and was restrained that led to the hilarious thing during the review as green is just like dancing around like exhorting the crowd on and i joked that i think like kerr might have sent all six centers to uh, outside of green to the table to try and check in for him (laughs) so just and and everybody taking all of their guys out of the game for the last 3.5 seconds of the game was just really funny it's like oh we're not gonna get any more altercations um there is some talk that kevin love could face a possible suspension for game two i sure as hell hope he doesn't get suspended this is a, a fascinating test of the rule because i actually when i rewatched it Kevin Love was on the floor when Livingston's shot was in the air. I think he was on the floor before the foul occurred. I don't exactly know why. Maybe he thought the game was over. You know, he thought, didn't think Tristan Thompson was going to foul. He had a towel over his head. And then once they called the foul, he was angry about that. But Love was not involved in the altercation. He did not enter the floor because of the altercation. I'm guessing that's going to be the cover the NBA uses to not suspend him. But I'm not sure of it. And it would be it would be a big shame if that's the reason that Kevin Love is suspended for if, if Kevin Love is not playing in game two because of that. Yeah. And they've on these borderline cases, especially in the playoffs, they've uh, avoided it. And yeah, Love was already on the floor when it happened. And then, uh, you know, he's very slightly takes like a couple of steps to like, try to get the referee's attention. He said, uh, you know, whether that's true or not, who knows, but then he gets, you know, the assistant coach comes out there as the altercation begins uh, you know, because at this point, when Thompson had been ejected, the altercation hadn't even really started yet. Uh, you know, Thompson got ejected, and then there was just like some milling around. And at that oh, point, and, and guess what cost it again? The guy, the guy who was mad, had the ball in his hand, and you know, and then there's all that kind of so people are going around the ball and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I think that was a part of it. Yeah. So, but as soon as basically like Draymond and Tristan become engaged then an assistant comes out and just like kind of pushes you know gently guides kevin love to the bench and he immediately walks over there so yeah it, it would be a pretty bullshit suspension I, I hope it doesn't happen and i think you know you'd say that oh the litter of the law you know all right jurisprudence fetishists uh but uh and i think having that letter of the law is still good because you just you want to have a deterrent right because the, the what the reason that exists is like if you make the rule well all right, you can go on the court, but as long as you don't get involved in an altercation, it's fine. Well, if you run on to, onto the court, then you could try to like break up a fight or something, and it could be one of these Kermit Washington, Rudy T situations where Washington kind of like sees Rudy T running in and then like turns and decks him. You know, like you don't you don't want anything that can make anyone who's on the court already think that you are now about to get involved in the altercation, even if you're not. So that's why the that rule exists. Uh, but I think that they can in any when there's any kind of plausible deniability whatsoever the guy didn't do anything i think you can just kind of let it go and it'll be okay it's just you need that tool to be able to uh, be a deterrent and suspend someone if you know they really do you know if somebody takes like five hard steps towards it towards it and then he gets pulled back by the officials you know that might be a different case than what love was doing well and this also ties in with one of the other kind of moments in this game that could end up being important that we didn't talk about which was at the end of the second quarter Draymond Green fouled LeBron James 
poked him in the eye. And how I know that he poked him in the eye is that you could see it with LeBron's eye after that. Like when I was watching the replay after, because we yeah. couldn't see LeBron it. LeBron said he actually we had like blurred vision after the game. Blurred and vision. it was insane yeah. to me how the hell Draymond could have thought it wasn't a foul is just unbelievable and to then, me. Like he didn't have well, his so hands then, up. Like it, it didn't take the contact of the chest. He poked him in the face. Like how is how could that possibly not and, be a foul? And so Green was so incensed, he got a technical. And so that was his fourth technical point. And this is not the same as the flagrants, which is why he was suspended from game five of the 2016 finals. It is seven technical points. So if they theoretically gave Green, and he certainly could have gotten something for taunting and all of that. I mean, the league's taunting technical stuff is a little bit weird, but he's now three away from a suspension. And that includes nothing related to the Thompson issue or any of his other antics right around then. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, you know, anytime you're involved in that sort of an altercation, I'm uh, surprised that he didn't end up with the technical, uh, which could have put him at five. And then, you know, one double technical ejection and you're uh, you're suspended. Uh, or or even just like, or even just one of those little, you know, two guys are getting chesty and so they give both of them technicals if that happens uh-huh. twice. Like, it doesn't even have to be an ejection. Yeah, I mean, he's probably got enough of a buffer now if he escapes, if they don't, like, review it and give him a retroactive technical or something like that. Um, anything else on this one before uh, we turn it over to Mark Stein here to talk uh, Kawhi and Colangelo? Well, I want to see the how the minute distribution with the Warriors centers shift shakes out for the rest of the series and for Cleveland's guards, because I mean, Clarkson, Clarkson should not play with LeBron. I mean, just because he takes too many shots. It's, it's the same idea. Like there is a theoretical value to him on this team. And also, you know, Hey, he can hit catch and shoot shots, but that's not all he takes. You know, the, you're yeah. going to get into that. Uh, also, I don't of, think he can hit catch and shoot shots anymore. Apparently. Sometimes he was over three in the first game in the first game after the trade, he hit like, well, he actually shot 40% from three for the Cavs in the regular season, but that was not a large sample. But so, I mean, if, if, if you're going to give, and in this game they had to, because George Hill was, was unavailable due to foul trouble, give those minutes to Chetty, give those minutes to basically anybody else. Oh, we should also mention, I thought Larry Nance played a good game. He, he was better to me in the first half than the second half, but he played with energy and they found him a couple times. Yeah. I thought he, I thought he did pretty well, well. One of four free throws was pretty rough for him, though. But yeah, I mean, he, he did have some nice stuff. He actually had a couple of post ups that that went pretty well. I mean, I think Golden State will be ready for that. Uh, but the, oh. actually, he actually he scored on both of his post ups amazingly. And one other thing, tie related to Larry Nance. If you those who remember, the Warriors and Rockets both missed a ton of free throws in Game Seven. Golden State nineteen of twenty this time around. So uh, any adjustments for the next game? You talked about the Warriors center rotation. Um, you know, I, we've talked about how we think Cleveland sh- should maybe do more trapping, especially when Looney is on the floor in particular. Uh, we might even see JaVale McGee start the next game. Although, oh, we didn't even discuss that, that missed dunk. <laughs> the missed oh dunk that he had. He, he caught the ball strangely. And then he just, it, it was sort of like when Clay shoots a shot and his feet were never set, where it's just like, oh, this isn't going to work He just had no well. idea. He, as soon as he, he had no idea where he was on the floor and no idea who was around him. Uh, and, and oh, also Curry threw a couple of a, a couple of really weird turnover pass, like one where he threw an injury pass like a mile over Durant's head. And then yeah. he threw that one at JaVale's feet. He threw like. Yeah, that should have been an alley I anything. mean, that, that could have been a huge momentum play at, at that point in the game, too. I think that would have put too, him up yeah. seven or eight. Yeah, but yeah. but I mean, Javale is usually just a wonderful finisher. Like I have no idea oh, what yeah. happened. I think you just you know got discombobulated somehow. Um, I want to see more of that screening action for Love out of the corner. 
Uh, no team has been able to, to stop that yet. I, I don't know why they went away from that after early on. I mean, especially late in the game, like why not run that? Um, you can make an argument that if they're switching, they might as well play Corver more. And he was actually plus 12 in 16 minutes. I think he, although against mostly bench units, you can make the argument that, hey, if if you've got love in the game anyway, they're just going to attack him. So it doesn't hurt to have one more defensive liability on the floor and that Corver actually is a, is a decent help defender. We'll see whether that's true or, or maybe Corver could be even a, an even bigger liability for one-on-one action uh, than uh than love is but uh, yeah i might try and get a, a few more minutes uh, for him uh, and i mean this was a quite an offensive game though the warriors had 17 points in the overtime which was a ton uh but uh, overall so, so maybe there's a little something of you know that doesn't reflect the meat of the game but 127 and 115 offensive ratings in this game and I mean, I, I think the Warriors, for their part, I might try Clay on James a little bit more. Uh, I think the switching, I mean, it's got to be exhausting for Curry. But, man, I mean, Curry, that guy is just in phenomenal shape. I mean, he didn't look remotely tired by the end of this game, even with all the, the guarding of LeBron that he had to do. Um, more Livingston, more Draymond at center. That's obvious. I mean, I think, um, for the Cavs, I might give Rodney Hood a shot and then maybe just try to play Maybe you try to play George Hill more with when LeBron is out of the game, so you just don't have to play Clarkson at all. Anything else you got here? That's about it. I'm excited. I'm excited I'm ha- for game two. I'm also happy that we have a couple of days off to kind of process this. Also, you know, we're finishing this recording about two in the morning Pacific time. So, what, What's your feeling on game two right now? I think the Cavs will play worse than they did, and I think the Warriors will play about the same. So I, I think I think the Warriors will win, but I'm not I don't think it's a lock or anything anything silly like that. But Cleveland has I think Cleveland is actually kind of in some ways closer to a template than the Warriors are in terms of how to succeed in the series. It's just that they need to play they need to outplay the Warriors and have the template work to win. Yeah, I mean James had that ridiculous shooting third quarter. The Warriors played much better defense on him overall in the second half, but I still think they made a lot of mistakes. Uh, that and credit Cleveland for actually forcing those mistakes. I mean, it, it's crazy to think that, like, you know, not only is Le- LeBron you know on another level from where Harden was, at least to, by the time these playoffs rolled around, but then I think Cleveland's offense, rudimentary though it is, actually is like has a lot more plays in it than Houston seemed to. I mean, and and not only plays, but just LeBron's intelligence level and just little tricks to like wrong foot and get a little bit of an advantage off these pick and rolls and switches. Like they definitely like forced the Warriors into far more mistakes than Houston because Houston is just so rudimentary of just, all right, we're going to get the switch and now Harden's going to go one-on-one or maybe Eric Gordon, if they're really changing it up. (laughs) I I was thinking at points in this game, something I've said before that as an intellectual exercise, it would be very interesting to me. I don't expect this to happen that if LeBron were to leave the Cavs, if they just basically kept the roster together, because I want to see just what this team looks like without LeBron. You know, it's kind of the Garfield minus Garfield for anybody who's ever read that. I think they would be abysmal. That's my 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 indication. I mean, they certainly would have enough talent to do certain things. But, I mean, keep in mind that he is a central part of their offense and their defense sucked already. So... I don't think we're going to see that, but I mean, he, I I talked in game seven of the other series about how everything good offensively came from LeBron. That was mostly the case here as well. 
Yeah, and, and maybe the Cavs can shoot better on threes. You know, the, maybe that'll make up for the fact that LeBron, as crazy as this postseason has been for him, probably won't have 51 points in the next game. They do have a two-day break, though. I think that helps LeBron, uh, to that they have two-day breaks of pretty much every game between all the games of the series except for three and four. So, but I, I just, you know, Cleveland did not defend well in this game. Kevin Durant is going to play better offensively. They don't really seem to have any kind of a plan against Curry. They let Thompson get loose a ton for five, five of ten three-pointers. Pretty much every single one of those was wide open. A lot of them were in transition. So maybe they can play a little bit better defensively, but they're just so spread out, and they have Love out there who's just so slow, and their communication is just, you know, they haven't been practicing the scheme the entire year the way Houston has been, and, and they don't have anywhere near the personnel. So I, I don't anticipate... I, they're just going to have to hope that the Warriors miss shots. And the Warriors actually missed probably more shots in this game than you might have expected them to. And they still, you know, put up this 126 offense rating. I, I don't see Cleveland being able to stop this Warriors team. So I, I don't think this next game is going to be a blowout, but I do think that uh, Golden State will play better. It doesn't feel quite the same to me as 2015 when, as you'll recall, in an absolute classic game. Cleveland won game two after the Warriors were down 10 with like three minutes left and came back. I'd actually like to rewatch that game at some point soon. But Cleveland ended up winning it in overtime. But it just doesn't feel that way because Cleveland actually stopped the Warriors in game one of that series and, and they, you know, did not uh, in this game. So I, I think it's hard. I mean, Cleveland's going to be hard pressed to outscore Golden State. Before you j- jump to Mr. Stein, wanted to plug, I have two offseason previews that came out for The Athletic on the Celtics and the Rockets, two teams we talked about recently for Dunked On, a little bit of a different angle on both of those. And also the, our Patreon mailbag. We we released oh, yeah. that on, on Thursday afternoon, went on a lot of interesting topics, including luck and ranking the recent champions. That was, was a fun question. Interesting thought process. I, I felt like yeah, we ultimately we also... didn't have like the absolute best answer for that one. Like, like we weren't as definitive as we normally are, but it was a very difficult question. It was fun to talk about that one. Yeah. And then we also talked about like the future of the center position, a lot of stuff. So if you, we don't do much mail here anymore, partially because we want to support the Patreon and all that, but also because we get, we get good questions and it's, it's a, it's a good way to make it happen. And then, yeah. It's, I was going to start promoting the Twitter NBA show, but that's not until Wednesday, so we got some time. All right, so uh, stay tuned for Mark. But first, uh, this from Wink, W-I-N-C. If you wanted to pick out a wine that you love, but it has to be one that you haven't had before, where do you start? Are you going to go to the store and pick out the one with the, the prettiest label? That's you know That was about my level of knowledge uh, before I was introduced to Wink. But Wink makes it easy to discover great wine by shipping wines that are personalized for you right to your door. They start at just $13 a bottle, and what they have is this awesome palette profile quiz. It takes just a couple of minutes. They'll ask you questions like how you feel about blueberries, how you take your coffee, and they actually have found wines that have really worked well. My sister is the bar manager at this really nice restaurant in Chicago, and so when she was in town for Christmas, I was, uh, I'm always a little intimidated to try and uh, give her some alcohol to drink. And so uh, we opened this great blend from Wonderful Wine Company and she had never had it before. She tried it and she was like, wow, like, where'd you get this from? Like, you, you don't know anything about wine. How did you get this? And I was like, I told her, told her about Wink. So uh, with Wink, you can also get new delicious lines uh, every month. There are no membership fees. You can skip any month, cancel anytime. Shipping is covered, and if you don't like a bottle, they will replace it with one that you love. 
So discover this great wine today. Go to Trywink, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash Capspace. Easy to remember, we talk about Capspace all the time in the program. They'll get you $20 off your first shipment. That's Trywink, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash Capspace. Make sure you use that slash Capspace URL. Let them know that you came from us. Test one, test one. Ah, there we go. Okay. All right, let's start again here. Sorry about that. All right, let's uh, now bring in Mark Stein of the New York Times. We've been trying to set this up for like the last two and a half weeks or so. And I guess the timing was somewhat fortuitous for us, although uh, perhaps not as much for Brian Colangelo with the the scandal out of Philadelphia. And so Danny and I talked about that a lot yesterday and what some of the allegations are, which, you know, as we'll stress, of course, uh, have not been proven yet, uh, but... I wanted to ask you to add a little extra here of just what has the reaction been around the league uh, to this explosive story from uh, Ben Dietrich of the Ringer? Well, you know, I think you got to put it in a couple categories. I mean, obviously, in the NBA Twitter space in which you reside, you know, it is a blaze like nothing since the DeAndre Jordan free agent saga. Was that 2015? Has it already been three years since that happened? I mean, yeah, it's, amazingly. It's, uh, I mean, and look, and you can't just dismiss NBA Twitter as some biosphere of, you know, noise and just nonsense because the players are in there, the GMs are in there, the owners are in there. I mean, that that's what made this so amazing in the initial phase is that Joel Embiid, the franchise player, weighed in on this in multiple ways, tweets, liking tweets, you know, he got right in the middle of it, but you have... Rockets GM Daryl Morey, one day after his team was eliminated from the playoffs, the Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, you know, their team has obviously been in the news in a very negative way for a while, and they're both, you know, commenting on this. So, I mean, the reaction, and I think behind the scenes, obviously, every team in the league is just mesmerized by this and hooked on it and, and wants answers. So that's, that's one level of reaction. But then the other level of reaction really is, the measured lawyerly reaction, it still is wait and see. I mean, for everything that's out there, so much of it is still circumstantial. And, uh, you know, I, I think people want firm, real answers to know exactly what to make of it. What is the Sixers investigation going to prove? I mean, so it's, it's, it's a wide range of emotions, but I mean, it is, you know, I had one executive from one team ask me, is this the craziest story you've ever seen? And I said, I don't think I'm ready to say it's the craziest. I mean, right away, the DeAndre Jordan thing pops into my head. And their answer was, okay, then name two crazier. It's, it's not easy to come up with two, two crazier. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's in the running for one of the wildest tales we've ever seen. But it's also changing, too. I and mean, we, we saw just how much it changed in one day when the Twitter detectives out there who are amazing seemed to – at least establish the possibility that there are some connections here between Brian Colangelo's wife and all these crazy tweets and questions. So, I mean, you know, let's just hope that by the time we hit stop here, that something else hasn't happened to take this story in a completely different direction. So let's say, because we are dealing with, with possibilities at this point, it does seem very likely to me, we'll throw out the possibility that this is just, like a complete setup, right? I mean, I think, you know, if it is, perhaps he could be exonerated. I don't know exactly what evidence could prove that 
necessarily. I mean, this is something that it's very hard to prove either affirmatively or negatively, but let's say that it is either Colangelo or perhaps more likely at this point, someone in his immediate orbit, uh, perhaps his wife. What does that do to his ability to do his job? Uh, You know, specifically, we'll keep it to the context right now of just dealing with, with people on other teams, which of course, you know, with the, this crazy important upcoming summer is uh, you know, of paramount importance here. If it was him, if it was proven to be Brian, yes, then I think inevitably you say, uh, you know, that, that would cost him his job. I mean, you, you, he couldn't do his job if it was proven to be him. But if it's proven to be someone close to him, i.e. his wife, that becomes a much murkier scenario as I am fond of reminding anyone who asks me questions about other sports. I am not an NFL expert, but didn't Roger Goodell, the white, the commissioner, didn't his wife basically get accused and even found out of of doing the same thing that she was defending him on Twitter. So he's still the commissioner of the NFL. It didn't, you know, now people will say maybe this is a different level. Maybe the things. Oh yeah. I I would be one of those people who would say that. Discussed or revealed, uh, you know, but then I think you could also, if you really dig into the tweets, you know, are, are they, did they really reveal facts or is it mostly just opinions? I mean, there are so many ways to interpret this depending on where you sit. And so I got, I don't, I don't know if it's proven to not be Colangelo. I don't know how the Sixers are going to react. I don't know how seriously they're going to view it. Now, the fact that, that Joel Embiid seems incredibly upset by this, that obviously has to be a big, big factor in this. Will Embiid have the same reaction if it's proven to be someone close to Brian Colangelo? I mean, that could change things, but uh, it's it's really hard to predict where this thing is going to go. And I, and I you know, look, I, nobody wants to be careful, but I think we have to be a little bit careful here because it's it's too soon in the process to exactly know naturally there's this you know mania and you know everybody wants answers yesterday i don't know it's that simple you're 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 the you have the legal brain in this conversation you i mean i mean you tell me well i i mean i i don't think that you need to i, I mean joel Embiid it had the, the way of saying hey you know if if this is proven true i mean and i think we i have been danny was when we talked about it yesterday i know you are being careful to not discuss this as 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 if it's fait accompli as if it's him i mean you just it, i think you have to just discuss it in terms of the evidence that's available at the time while acknowledging that there could be more evidence that's going to come on and you know at this point there's evidence indicating that perhaps it's it's his wife uh and certainly i mean to me the the thing that is difficult to get past is you know let's say that it is his wife for example that there was some confidential information you know for example the Jaleel Okafor trade right and, and telling reporters hey ask about Jaleel Okafor and, and failing a physical or you know Brett Brown wanted Nerland's Noel gone or you know stuff along those lines where but see, even or, even in, here, but even in the yeah. Okafor even in the Okafor one though there is there is a problem if you know the scuttle is that that thing actually collapsed over draft pick protections and not a failed physical so we we don't even know that that's accurate and so it it well but but okay so if it if it is proven to be his wife though like where did that come from 
otherwise that i mean i mean it's like and that's again you're getting into now a perception problem perhaps more than a reality problem here and hey perception is a perception problem is a real problem i'm not i, I am 100 yeah. percent not disagreeing with you i mean the, you know the sixers are going to have to decide if you know if it is proven to be someone close to brian but not brian you know they're going to have to decide do we stand by him because standing by him means that they co-opt this and it becomes, you know, it becomes their scandal. So uh, they definitely have decisions to make and, you know, we'll see if they're willing to ride with the, you know, the negative perception. Cause look, the, the, the first, a bad perception is in the air. And also the timing is just terrible for the Sixers. I mean, at any point in the calendar, this would not be good, but it's basically June one. We're almost there. I mean, this is these next six weeks are Brian Colangelo's most important six weeks, possibly since he joined the Sixers. It's an incredibly important time for the franchise. I know my good friend Brian Winter said it was the most important summer in Sixers history. I don't know that I'm ready ready to go that far. You know, I will. I'm still old enough to remember. Yeah when they got Moses Malone and put together a team, <laughs> finally won Dr. J a championship. So I'm not going to say it is the most important summer in Sixers history, but it's a damn important one. So the timing is awful. Yeah, that wind horse is such a prisoner of the moment, isn't he? <laughs> I, had to, I had to get a little jab on him. He's, he's my brother, but I had to get a little, little jabbing on him. <laughs> uh, well, have you heard anything about what this investigation is going to entail and what the timeline is going to be? Not really. I mean, there isn't a lot out there about that. I mean, but, you know, I think it is somewhat safe to assume that the, the Sixers want to move quickly here, again, because of when this is all happening. You know, the draft is coming, but more importantly, free agency is coming. And it's a summer that I'm sure Duncan and LaRue can explain in much better terms than me how, what, a, what an, there's no cap, there's no cap space out there. The Sixers are one of the few teams that have it. The Sixers are said to be one of the teams that LeBron James will consider. I mean, there's just so much going on, and you know, there's going to have to be some level of clarity established pretty soon here. I, I don't think there's any question about that. So you know, I think as far as a focus, I mean, the biggest thing they want to know is, was Brian Colangelo personally responsible for this or not? I mean, that's, that's the first thing you try to determine. But, you know, I don't know if it is proven to be someone close to Brian. I don't know how they're going to react. I really don't. You know, if if it's not, you know, if it's not him, is that enough? I mean, only the Sixers know that right now. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I've said it, that it's a perception problem. And I, I said this last night. To me, this is my personal opinion, that whatever Brian Colangelo gives you as an exit, I mean, and there, there's two steps to this. Right? I mean, one is, you know, would it be fair to fire him? And the other one is, would it be best for the 76ers to keep him on as in his current role and you know those may not those two questions may not have the same answer and i think given this even if it's not him but it is someone close to him you know even if that leads to a 30 percent chance or, or a 30 percent lower chance that lebron james or paul george or whoever else is going to want to come and play for the 76ers i think that you have to move on from him at that point, even if that's not fair to him, you know, which you know we can argue about whether that is fair to him or not. Uh, I think it's hard for me to say that Brian Colangelo just has is such an awesome executive and has such magic sauce and he's such a genius that that could outweigh the negative perception 
that could arise from this. Yeah, there's no question. If the Sixers can determine that this is going to impact their basketball business in any way, shape, or form, then the decision is made for them. No question. What's interesting is when you talk to, you know, I've, I've talked to multiple agents about this, and they say, I mean, almost, almost universally, if the Sixers have the most money, free agents are not going to be shying from it. That they would be very surprised if players, you know, players don't think about the GM in general the way the way they think about the coach who they interact with on a daily basis. There, there is a difference. So I don't. I think we're being a little naive to think that this is going to send all free agents scurrying away from the Sixers. The Sixers have money in a in a summer where teams don't have money. So let's not. Oh, I, I agree with you there, but we're talking about like the best of the best free agents who ha- are going to be sorting through multiple max officers. I agree with you at the kind of the lower level. I always thought it was a ridiculous argument when it was used against Sam Hinkie that like, oh yeah, the free agents aren't going to want to come here because of like his machination. The bigger question to me is, you know, is MB. I mean, you know, I don't want to put this all on a young superstar player, but I, you know, I would imagine the Sixers are going to take a lot of their cues from how their superstar responds to this. Because Joel Embiid has already come out and said, if Brian is the one who tweeted these things, that would be really bad. You know, if it's found to not be Brian, but someone close to Brian, you know, how's this, how, how will that land with the superstar? And, you know, some, you know again, just something tells me that, that that's going to be a big element that factors into the way Philly handles this. Yeah, and especially, I mean, you know, I don't think that a lot of people have the perception that, like, you know, someone's wife would have just come up with her own opinion of well Joel Embiid isn't isn't the future of the franchise so let's run him into the ground you know I, I think the perception would be well she's getting that from somewhere you know and that that even if it wasn't Colangelo actually tweeting this that to some extent this represents what his private personal feelings were and I think you know there again there's enough of a perception problem there that I I struggle to think of how he might be able to come back from that um what do you make of his comments that he which he had to jordan schultz uh, yesterday uh, that he is being set up uh especially now in light of this emerging evidence that his wife may have been involved in in at least some of the accounts yeah i certainly don't think it was the wisest thing thing to say and you know i i actually i don't know on some levels i wondered i thought the denial if you didn't do this the denial should be even more forceful than they've been but then after reading that comment which i i thought landed pretty badly uh you know may, maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong there but uh yeah you know, well to I, me i don't understand why you know you're gonna just send a text message to jordan schultz after you've made your official statement already there's an ongoing investigation uh you know i mean i i, I guess maybe you could just say that like his wife is just lying to him about being involved in the accounts or just, you know, I have no idea where it is at this point, but that seemed like to me a, a very, uh, th- there's no benefit for making that statement. And there's a lot of downside. I mean, you just, you're again, you're going to look really foolish of like, Oh, I'm being set up and Oh wait, never mind. It was just my wife who's tweeting. Like, that's just, you know, I, I would want to be damn sure that, it was just a complete long con setup, which you know to me seems like the least likely explanation at this point. If I was going to make a statement like that, so I, I, I it doesn't seem like that's helping his cause. To me yeah, no question, Ill, ill-advised. But I also would say, if it, it, you know, if it's proven to be someone close to him, then you know, 
it's going to it's going to it's going to look very bad for him with or without that statement. I mean, you know, I'm 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 totally in agreement with you there. I mean, from a perception standpoint, there are going to be plenty of people who who say that she was acting on, you know, for him on his behalf. And, you know, that's where the whole perception thing becomes, a, you know, a huge problem. Can he shake that? And yeah. no, I, well, I, even if it's not on his behalf, it's she's getting these opinions as a result of interacting with him. You know, even if she's not thinking that, like, uh, maybe she is thinking that she's uh, interacting uh, on his behalf. But, you know, even if he's not saying to do that, she the perception that she's getting her information and opinions from him. But I mean, let's I, also I let's, know how to let's also not forget, though, that, that, that he would not be the first person in the NBA who struggles to corral a family member dispensing opinions on social media. So, I mean, yeah, but he probably would be the first GM. Right. But I mean, it does, you know, no, it, you know, that is, that is something that happens in this league. And sure. No, Dr- Draymond's mom and like they're, they're, uh, yeah, quite a few moms out there in particular are, uh, it can be rather protective. Um, last question on this one. My thought was that this is kind of headed towards a Danny Ferry type administrative leave situation whereas uh, you know especially legally before the investigation is done you probably don't want to move on from him, especially if you're going to try to move on from him and not have to pay the rest of his contract uh that they'll want to complete the investigation i'm not sure even if it is if his wife like comes forward and tomorrow and says yeah it was me still these investigations these long reports i mean th- these things just take time like they, you're not going to finish a full investigation, especially not one that could be released publicly for in this amount of time in months. Like lawyers just don't work that quickly. Like they have to just cross all the I's and dot all the T's. So that's what I think it could happen here and would be the best solution for all parties is, all right, you know, he's going to get taken out of the day-to-day runnings of the franchise, placed on kind of an administrative leave. And once the actual investigation is complete, they can reassess. What do you think of that possibility? Yeah, I mean, again, that's where the timing of this is so brutal for Philly because it's draft, it's free agency, it's a massive summer, and you're absolutely right. All of us in the media, you know, I just did it when we started this conversation. All of us in the media want a quick answer. You know, you and I are talking on the morning of game one. We want so, six- so do the Sixers. The Sixers really want a quick answer too, I'm sure. <laughs> you're, you know, game one is Thursday. The media wants the Sixers thing to be settled by Friday. Uh, it ain't going to be settled by Friday. You're right. And so – what do they do? I mean, that's, that's, it's a, it's a great question. Mark Eversley is the number two guy in that organization. I would think, you know, Brett Brown has become such a face for the Sixers and, and kind of, you know, in, in terms of being a spokesman for them, you know, does, does, you know, I, I, you know, he's not a personnel man by trade, but you kind of elevate him into that role if you have to go this route. But, but I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, even even if they had an answer by Monday, even if the Sixers knew on Monday that they needed some dramatic change, you know, it's not that easy to snap your fingers and get a GM to plot your course when when free agency is a, a couple of weeks away. So, I mean, it's it's a huge. I mean, I wouldn't want to be the Philadelphia 76ers right now. Let's just say that. All right. Let's turn to uh, what used to be the weirdest story in the NBA, or maybe the second weirdest. Uh, given where you wanted to rank the Markel Fultz saga. But Kawhi Leonard, 
what's the latest that you've heard from her and their season now has been over for uh, over a month uh what's the latest just for uh, i'll give you the floor to talk about what, what you're hearing as of late yeah look i think everyone in san antonio is still waiting for the mythical meeting that takes place between greg popovich and Kawhi leonard to, to see if they can start getting back on the same page obviously greg popovich dealing with a very deep personal tragedy. The loss of his wife happened in during the playoff in the first round. Pop understandably stepped away from the team, uh, you know. But everyone in San Antonio has kind of been waiting for this this meeting to ultimately happen because the distance between Kawhi and the team only seemed to widen as the season went on. Now I, I'm one of those people who who really believed, especially after we watched this just last summer, that Pop and LaMarcus Aldridge could go back to dinner, bang out a truce. You know, Pop is so persuasive in those kind of one-on-one situations. You know, it's just it's, it's a completely different conversation than the Pop that I think the public knows and thinks they know. I mean, you know, even the sideline reporters who have to deal with getting Pop, I mean, you, you talk to them. I did a story on this a few years ago. I mean, Everyone holds him in such high regard, even the people who get subjected to kind of pop at his worst. I mean, when you talk to him one-on-one, it's just a completely different experience. And, you know, Steve Kerr's the same way, and, and Pop was kind of his mentor for that. So I've definitely been one of those people who, who have thought all along that Pop and Kawhi are going to sit down and figure this out. But I, but, but I have to say, by the time the playoffs came, this thing got so weird and so fractured that I don't. I didn't think that's possible anymore, and I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I don't, I don't know if the Spurs and Kawhi Leonard can get on the same page at this point. I, I, I really, I have my doubts. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think a lot of people do as well. But to me, the biggest issue and one that I think is being under discussed here is just simply whether the guy is healthy or not. You know, I mean, his regardless of whether the Spurs cleared him, he doesn't believe he's he's healthy. Uh, he's been in new york seeing these specialists who you know in theory hadn't cleared him yet as of the playoffs do you have an idea of like what his actual health status is yet is he healthy now like what what is his activity level because i think to me that determines everything well he's done it all behind closed doors but i would also say to me he's such a transformational player that i just obviously teams are going to have questions and obviously any team that would theoretically trade for him, would have to take a super long look at where he is physically. But I, I don't, as, as mysterious as this, all, as, as, as this has all been, I certainly haven't sent any hesitation on the masses that want to jump in on the Kawhi Leonard sweepstakes if the Spurs and Kawhi can't get back on the same page and if the Spurs said, you know what, we're just going to trade this guy. I mean, I, I still think the line would be out the door for him Given all, even with all the questions about his health, and, and we don't know them, we can't answer them. I mean, he's you know the Spurs probably don't fully know because he's insisted on being treated by doctors in faraway New York, and and they're the ones running the whole rehab. So I I just think I still think it's that, that no no one is no one is being scared off yet, but we don't know. You're right. We 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 really we we don't know because. Uh... The way I've thought about it is you're already his trade value is reduced 
because he's only got one year left on his contract he can opt out after next year then you throw in the fact that no one knows for sure whether he's healthy or not i mean and the nature of this injury which you know in various places been talked about as possibly even a degenerative type of condition is that maybe it's going to flare up again you know that it's going to be has to be something that's going to be managed for the rest of his career i mean it basically spent an entire year uh inactive at, at this point and so he could even if he does feel good as of july 1st what happens when he gets back in the crucible of a season what happens when he gets back in training camp and so I, like to me if i'm trading for him either i'm not putting my best offer on the table or you know i i need to see some proof there that he's really ready to go and you know you can't have a guy really work out for you you can do a physical but to me i don't know how much a physical helps you because it is a, a chronic type of, of injury so you know maybe there's medical records from uh, his group in new york or whatever but that that to me is just such a complication and then same thing with the spurs right i mean yeah there's all this interpersonal stuff but if I don't know that he's healthy. And again, you know, there's this disconnect between him and the organization on whether that's true or not. And really it's about whether Kawhi himself feels healthy. If you don't know that he's healthy, then how can you give him that extension offer? And then to, to me, still, given, given the fact that he's missed a year, if they make that extension offer and they feel comfortable making it, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't take it. And you can always, I guess, agitate for a trade later too, if you want to, you know, after a year, because you have to wait until then. So I, I just... To me, it's just so hard for this to be at all resolved without some evidence that he's healthy. And maybe that evidence could be made available behind the scenes and we'll never know about it and he gets traded. But I, I, I that's just what's so weird. And that's what the source of the disconnect was to begin with. Look, I think we'll, we, will, we will start to get those answers as July comes into focus. But one, you know, I, the leap has been made in some corners that the Spurs have definitively decided to offer him the extension. I, I don't think we know that either. I mean, what I read last week, I think it was, you know, like a mention in, in a San Antonio Express news story of, you know, the six, the Spurs are expected to, and that just became in the aggregation world, Spurs have, you know, max offer on table. You know, I, you know, the Spurs are still the number one team in the league in terms of keeping stuff close to the vest. And so their intentions with the Supermax, I don't think they are known. I really don't. I don't, I don't think we know yet what they've decided. And and since these meetings that that are all this, since this supposed pop Kawhi summit, to our knowledge, has not happened. I mean that 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 probably shouldn't be surprising that a final stance hasn't been made. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I know Pop uh, obviously uh, with what he's dealing with it, it's difficult. But the fact that that summit hasn't happened yet in and of itself to me is, is a little interesting um what about the idea of do you think this has to get resolved in july because i was thinking especially with the health issue what if you they have until the end of training camp to to agree on that extension what if you just get him into camp and he get an idea of whether he's healthy or not and you tell him in the summer hey you know if we get you into camp and you you prove that you're healthy that offer is on the table and then if he doesn't take it you can trade him before the start of the season what do you think of that potential idea I think the feeling around the league has been that the Spurs are so decisive and so proactive when they have to be that they wouldn't let it get to that point that they would, you know, insist on action before then. So they're not, you know, so it doesn't 
press up all the way against camp and they're put in this kind of crazy position. And and then the other thing is, and and look, this, this will test, I, I guess, what you were asking before, you know, the draft is coming and the heavyweight trade offers, they start in conjunction with the draft. So yeah. that, that's the downside of waiting is your, your trade offers may not be as good. And, and, you know, whether the, you know, the Spurs might want to be patient, maybe, maybe let, let's just, let's just play along and say they want to be, as patient as you just outlined there. Well, I'm sure teams interested in Kawhi don't want to be patient. And the Spurs, as early as now, are going to have to start weighing trade pitches for him because the calls are going to come whether they want to take the calls or not. My guess, though, is that without knowing that he's healthy, uh, that those offers will not be as good as they hoped that they would be. And so, it, it, so they're never going to be. They're never going to yeah. be as good as they yeah. hoped they're going to be. I mean, let, that's the reality. Yeah, but 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 you could be in a situation where it's like, oh, this is the offer. All right, well, we're going to at least keep him around and, and prove that he's healthy, and hope that either the offer improves or you know we'll just play out the year with them uh, another healthy year that's uh, good, and then you know maybe he qualifies for designated player uh, again, makes an All NBA team, and then you can make that offer to him when he's a free agent uh because you know if he only plays half the year then it's like you're, you're kind of glad you didn't make that offer because i i think for only one year of Kawhi, i don't know that the offers are going to be so good where it's like oh this is going to transform our franchise it's going to really jumpstart a rebuild so you know uh, do we really want to trade him away for some like you know number 10 pick type of offer or something like that if that's the best type of offer that they have for a guy who's injured and may may not stick around then I'd say, hey, might as well just keep him around and see if we can work it out for the, over the next year. And if it doesn't, then he leaves. But, like, I'd rather do that than just take this piddling offer. Well, the other variable here is Team Kawhi. Kawhi's group, as Pop would say. Sure. They're, they're still largely an unknown quantity. And so, you know, what, what I have felt from the start as this whole, you know, crazy Spurs season unfolded, you know, the season that, that really – brought the Spurs back into the NBA, dealing with the kind of dramas <laughs> that 29 other teams have to have to deal with. The Spurs... Yeah, and I'm sure there was no no shortage of, see, see, this is what it's like, San Antonio. This is what being in the NBA is really like. Yeah, it is. And these are modern superstars, Kawhi Leonard and LaMarcus Aldridge, and they want to do things on their terms, as modern superstars do, and as they should. You know, this is the era of player power lebron james leads the way and sets the example and maybe that makes people uncomfortable but if the players have the power they should use it they should exploit it they should revel in it because when the teams have the leverage they will most assuredly do the same so Kawhi leonard wants to do thing on do things on his terms lamarcus aldrich wants to do things on his terms and you know that's been a big time adjustment for the spurs to have to deal with because in the Tim Duncan era, which spanned two decades, it was never that way. I mean, that's what made Duncan such a unique superstar is that he was totally willing to cede the power of the superstar to his coach. And But, you know, we shouldn't, you know, d- does that mean we should expect everyone to do that? No, we, we shouldn't. All right, well, I think uh, that's a good one to end on. A good primer going in, we'll be watching both of these situations we talked about really closely and, and – uh, Please uh, sign up for Mark's newsletter as well. I'm a subscriber to that. Uh, you can uh, just get Mark Stein in your email box uh, every day and, and read him at, at the New York Times. Thanks again for joining us, Mark. We appreciate it. Sounds good, man. See you soon. See you at the finals.
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.